0: I read a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Loved the title. It drew me in. It was written by a media critic by the name of Neil Postman, who wrote this. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, When serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when a people become an audience and their political business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk, and cultured death is a clear possibility. I read those words and I was taken aback, because they seemed to so succinctly describe the trends that I was observing when I looked around me uh, at the world, at American society today. And I thought to myself, wow, this is true. We need to get more engaged as Christians. We really need to to, to speak up and spark a different kind of public discourse and model a different way of of moving through the world. And if a lot of us don't act, I'm thinking at this time, if we don't get going, this precious, amazing society that we have is is just going to keep dying by degrees. But you know something even more chilling than that book quotation? You know what is even more chilling than that? I read that quotation in 1985. How much more has the dial been turned up? How much more has the pot been heating up degree by degree since 1985 in all of those various ways? In the time since then, I know that there have been many good things that have happened as well, but I don't think that, that uh, the author Evelyn Waugh is wrong in making this observation. Uh, Waugh writes, the West is dying of sloth, not wrath. For the most part, institutions are lost, not because they are stormed by hostile outsiders, but because their custodians Overcome by apathy, diffidence, and intellectual fecklessness, simply give them away. I think what the author is trying to say to us is that it is easy, without even meaning to, to become a bystander in life. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. But I feel in my own self sometimes that so much is swirling and sizzling all around me at any given time that it's tempting to just stand there gawking at it all. (laughs) It's amazing. A wall that's going on. I I become a watcher of our society's life. So much is wrong about what other people are doing, it seems to me at times, that it's natural to just get into a mode where I basically just sit there as a critic. You know, can you believe that? Look what he's doing, look what she said. You know, I'm just, a, I, I'm just this armchair critic. And even when we see a need out there that we have some feeling about uh, how to fill, so often we think to ourselves, well, somebody else will get to that. Somebody else would be even better at filling that need than I would. And so I get content with bystanding. This, of course, is not a great way of living. Um, it, it is not a helpful way of living at all. It doesn't bring forth the best in us. It doesn't unleash the, the, the mass capacities that are uh, present in a people to actually address the issues of our time. Uh, but this, I think, is probably why Jesus said we need to make a shift. We need a shift in our church, in our circles, in our society. We need to make this shift and if you are really one of my disciples, Jesus says in a text we'll look at today, then, then I want you to make a purposeful shift from simply bystanding to change-making. I want you, th- you to think of yourself primarily as a change-maker in this world. And, and to get out of the spectator chair and onto the field of play in a fresh way. And to make the point vivid, Christ describes Um, The role that he has for us um, in in simple terms, deceptively simple ones, but profoundly simple uh, imagery or profoundly powerful imagery, and this is what he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Raise your hand if you ever heard that phraseology before. Okay, you have. We've heard those terms a whole lot. Now those metaphors are, as I said, Uh, deceptively powerful ones? What is it about the kind of salt that a a Jewish mom in Jesus' day would be using in her kitchen or, or the kind of lamp that a Hebrew father might have lit in the evening that suggests the shift towards the kind of role that I've been talking about today that Jesus wants to play in the world? One thing we can say about salt and light is they are distinct from their surroundings. That's one of the essential qualities of those particular agents. They're distinct from the surroundings. If you went to a farmer's market tomorrow, there'll be one in a couple of the towns around here tomorrow, uh, a market not unlike the kind of market that existed in the first century in Jesus' time, you could buy a whole lot of food there and yet little or none of the food you'd buy in one of those markets would be salty. Actually, it would be reasonably bland. Similarly, if you were able to travel across the vast uh, reaches of space, you would discover that very little out there is light. It's mostly darkness, this universe. Salt exists in marked contrast to the blandness of most food, which is why we prize it. And light exists in marked contrast to the darkness of most of the cosmos, which is why we love light. If you're truly following me, says Jesus, you will be that exceptional entity. You you will be distinct from those who are not following after me. One of my favorite authors um, is a guy named Eugene Peterson, who uh, is probably most famous for having written the the Bible paraphrase called The Message. And in his book, Run with the Horses, Uh, Peterson suggests that in the world today, we have come to embrace, maybe unconsciously, a way of living that is often bland or dark or both. And this is what Peterson says. The puzzle is not why so many people live so badly. In other words, there have always been bad people. That's not the major problem. The the puzzle is why they live um, not so wickedly, but so inanely. Uh, not so cruelly, but so stupidly. We have celebrities, but not saints anymore, he says. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. I mean, think about the serial killer shows we watch now. <laughs> you know, amazing. We're entertained by the thought of these, uh, of these actors Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. Aimless and bored, people just seem to be amusing themselves with trivia and trash. I'm just embarrassed by the number of, of Netflix series I've just binged on that, that fit the car- category. Um, now, now, I know that characterization of society may be a little extreme, Uh, But my point is that if we are citizens of the city of God, if we are the new colonists of the kingdom of God, the Bible uh, says that Christians are to be, then our character and our conduct should be markedly different, distinct from that characterization I've just given you. To come across a group of my followers, says Jesus, actually ought to be a lot like an experience that was very common in the ancient world. I don't know how many of you have spent any time, even over the last couple of months, away from a city. Maybe you went up to the lake country, maybe you, you got out in the desert someplace. I hope you got far enough away that you could actually look up and notice the darkness of life, in some sense, away from the lights. And and that was a common experience in the ancient world. And and often people would be traveling from one place to another and they'd they'd be tired after a long journey and they'd find themselves hungry and thirsty and all of a sudden they'd come around some bend in the road and there it would be, up on top of a mesa, a city on a hill, a town. And it would be blazing with light It was a place of light and warmth and safety and sustenance and the very sight of that for a traveler would just make their heart surge and enable them to find that second wind and they'd pick up their pace and they'd make their way toward that city. I want you to be that city, says Jesus. I want you to be that kind of a community when people see you. It picks up hope in their heart. Like that young man I met this past week who just wandered in here looking for hope. I want it to be such a quality of life that we share together that, that our church, and I don't mean the building, I mean the people, is a destination, a place of light and hope against a darkening sky. Is that true of us? Is that true of us right now? Is walking into the community that exists here today, uh, is it like just this breathtakingly refreshing experience for those who enter in. When they walk in, do they not find a group of people huddling together just with their friends, but do they find people looking to reach out a hand, to discover their story, to help them know that they are welcome, known, and loved? And, and, and if somebody followed you outside of the building as you went around to your workplace and to the sports fields and to your social circles and your home, if they they had a video camera on you and were taping the way or or capturing the way you do life, would the video go viral? Because it was so exceptional, the way you do life. It was amazing the way you handled yourself when somebody dissed you or hurt you. Amazing the grace that you showed and the strength and, and the, the sense of clarity that you showed in those moments, would they, would they be amazed at what they saw in their lens because it was inspiring the way that you shared from your resources with people in need. And, and it was so unusual the way that you dealt with that really seductive temptation that most of us would have fallen prey to, but you didn't because your identity was rooted so deeply in Christ Would they be amazed when you had this moment? You could have taken all of the credit, but you didn't. You gave it away. You blessed the others in the circle. You gave the glory to God. Would your life in any way, shape, form, slice, clip be the kind of thing that might go viral because it was so distinct and so beautiful? Would mine? You know, when we read our way through the the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and that teaching, you are the salt, you are the light, um, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, the very first chapter of Matthew 5. When we read that sermon, you're struck by this recurrent refrain Jesus makes throughout it. Uh, He says this, and you probably have heard it before. You have heard it said, but I say to you. What's Jesus asking for there? You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's asking for us to make a shift. It's all about the shift. I know you've heard that life is supposed to work like this. I know you've been told that goodness or success or satisfaction or wealth looks like this. But I say to you, it's like this. This is the direction to go in. Resolve. You're going to be as distinct from the ordinary way as as salt is from bland, as light is from darkness. As you make that shift, remember also that salt and light can easily get compromised and no longer be doing what they're meant to be doing. Uh, In this teaching, in Matthew 5, Jesus actually tells us two particular ways that salt and light can get compromised. For one thing, you can lose your saltiness. You can lose your saltiness. Have you ever left a a salt shaker, uh, uh, maybe up on the shelf or on the table, for so long that that it lost its saltiness, and you poured it out on the food, and you said, oh, this is terrible. Has, Has that ever happened to you? No, it's never happened to you. Do you know why? Because the salt we have today, common table salt, It is made out of sodium chloride, which my chemistry son says is a remarkably stable compound. We never need to fear that that salt will lose its saltiness. Not so the salt in Jesus' time. In Christ's day, salt was made from, actually gathered up from salt marshes that had dried up. And and, and the salt in the day of Jesus contained sodium chloride, but it also had all kinds of other impurities in it, like gypsum and natron and sodium sulfate. And over time, the sodium chloride could get leached out, and it would leave only the impurities behind. You wouldn't know it to look at it. It would still appear to be salt. It just wouldn't be salty anymore. And once that happened, it wasn't good for anything, really. Or, Or actually, it was only good for one thing, Jesus says in, in his, in his uh, story, it's good for one thing. What, what, what locals found in the first century was that those natron and the sodium sulfate and the gypsum uh, actually made a rather remarkable waterproof sealant. Who knew? And they would take it and they would throw it out on their roof and, and they would grind it in, they would actually trample it in to the cracks in the roof To keep the house dry. So, this is what Jesus means when he says if you lose your saltiness, it's no longer any good except to be a sealant. When Christians lose their saltiness, when Christians essentially stop um, preserving that distinctiveness and are left just mainly with their impurities we become a a sealant against the faith of other people. It is the hypocrisy that people sometimes see in the church or in its church leaders. It's the the, um, ideological uh, imperialism rather than a heart of love. It's, It's these impurities that seal off so many people today from finding the way of Jesus, the glorious way of Jesus. Eventually, we can sometimes appear to be Christian, but no longer function as salt in the world, which is why it's so critical that we just keep returning to the places where, where God gives us that distinctiveness, where He resaltifies us in a sense. That's why public worship like this is important. It's why being part of a small group of other believers is important. It's why reading God's word and praying and using other spiritual disciplines and laying yourself out in service. These are the ways that God keeps you salty and keeps me salty. So the question I would ask you is, what do you do between weekends? What are you doing between weekends to let God renew your distinctive character? I tell you, I couldn't do it. I'm in two small groups every week. I have devotional practices and prayer times, and otherwise, I'd come to you pretty bland, and some of you are thinking, eh, you're kind of bland right now, but... um, (laughs) So if salt and light are really to do the good for which they're created, it's gonna be because um, they they are not simply different from what surrounds them, but they are actually penetrating their environment. And this goes to the second uh, risk about, that Jesus is talking about when it comes to getting compromised. Uh, when Jesus was a little boy, he would have watched his mom take a handful of salt and, and, and press it into the meat uh, as a pre- preserving uh, factor to, in the heat of the mid of the Mideastern cult, um, climate uh, to preserve it against decay. And sometimes she would soak the food in salty water Uh, in order for the salt to do any good. It really needed to soak because the salt needed to penetrate uh, the meat. Jesus wants us to both penetrate and benefit our environment. Now, it's easy to forget this. We sometimes think to ourselves, you know, I'm different. I am different because I go to church. Well, that's good. That's not bad. But we can easily slip into thinking that what God really wants from us, mainly, is to come and to exercise our difference here on the weekends. We think, well, here I will be forgiving. Um, I will try to be forgiving when I'm here. Here we'll give credit to God for our blessings. I might even just raise a palm when we sing. I don't know, I might. Here we will speak of things like truth and grace. Here... We will live like Jesus, but we haven't been created for in here any more than salt is created for a salt shaker or light is created in order to be left underneath a building-sized bowl. And Jesus talks about the danger of leaving your light under a bowl, under a bushel. Don't get me wrong, it's great that we come here. As I said, it's part of the thing we do to keep the flame uh, going. In fact, it's nice sometimes to have a bowl or a bushel to protect the flame of faith against the winds of this world, just to have a little rest from the winds of this world for a while, hope that this community is that for you. It's nice to have a place where we get our saltiness refortified in a sense, but we should not evaluate our faith By what we do here on Sunday so much as by the influence we have out there on Monday. John Stott, the great uh, British scholar and Christian says this, will Christian men and women be able to so influence their society so that the values and standards of Jesus permeate American culture? That's the question of our time, he says. Will they? Will they permeate American culture? its legislation and institutions, its administration of justice, its conduct of of business, its education of its children and young people? Will the Christian community so penetrate the world that it affects its care of the sick and the elderly, its attitude towards dissidents and criminals, and the way of life, the dominant way of life of its citizenry? Will Christians have that effect? There's something that's intriguing about the original syntax of what Jesus says when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Um, The emphasis, most of the time, for us, is on salt and light. But actual syntax of the original Greek puts all the emphasis on the word you. You are the salt. You are the light. It's like he wants to wake us up to the fact that we're the secret. We're the key ingredient. that that we can do things that no one else can do. I can be sure it's not going to be me who who wakes your friends from their spiritual slumber. Uh, It's not going to be me that that influences the people in your workplace or in your neighborhood or your soccer team or your school. Uh, It's going to be you that's the salt and the light out there. Which, which I think brings us to the final metaphor or meaning of this brilliant metaphor that Jesus uses to explain our role out in the world. Uh, he wants us first and foremost, this is what I hit, I've been saying so far, to be these attractive witnesses to the life of God. Um, he's left us in this world rather than just launching us off into heaven so that we might live not these privately pious kinds of lives, but that we can penetrate the world with the values of his kingdom. And finally, the job of salt and light is to bring about change. It is to bring about change. He's put you and me out there so that we can change stuff. The funny thing about salt is it doesn't take a lot of it to change stuff, right? Just a little pinch and it alters the conditions. Robert Bella, a very famous sociologist from the University of California at Berkeley, uh, in his research about social movements and social change, says this. He he says that we should never underestimate the significance of a small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentler world. The quality of a culture can be changed when just 2% of its people have a new vision and live into that vision together. So have that vision, says Jesus. Have that vision, please. And if you ever doubt the power of just a single person going out there and living by the vision of the kingdom of God, then consider these words of historian Kenneth LaTourette as follows. He writes, no life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of humanity as that of Jesus Christ. Through his life, millions of people have had their inner conflicts resolved. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road toward genuine intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. The life of Jesus, he writes, has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse in history. It has emancipated millions from chattel slavery and millions of others from thraldom to vice. It has protected tens of millions of people from exploitation by their fellows and has been the most fruitful source of movements to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of greater justice and peace. That's... What one solitary life, one mustard seed, one little bit of yeast, one ray of light, one kernel of salt, that's what one life totally devoted to God can do in human history. What, my friends, could he do with an entire salt shaker? with bushels of yeast and seed, with a a, a veritable blaze of Christian commitment, which is to say, what could he do through you and through me in the days to come? Make no mistake about it. Christ's plan is that we make this critical shift from dabbling to discipleship, from securing ourselves to seeking the good of others, from demanding justice to extending mercy, from merely bystanding to actually change-making. Because you are the salt, the light, the yeast, the seed I'm putting out there, says Jesus. Speak up clearly, serve practically, give generously, reach out daringly. Do not wait for the solution. Be the solution. In the name of Jesus, I say to you, shift, shift. Please pray with me. We thank you, Lord God, that you love us enough to shake us by our lapels and to call us into the life that truly is life, to give us an opportunity to share in the wondrous work that you do and that you even more so seek to do to bring greater flourishing in this world, spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially, politically, in every sphere. Lord, use us, we pray, for your glory. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.